The message is entitled, The Apostle Thomas. Once again, we'll be using Matthew 10 as we have uh, used for the listing orders. But the text will be selective as we go through John, as we'll see. So the Apostle Thomas, as we continue in our series of the Apostles, uh, the Twelve Apostles, once again, we're going to be reminded of God's mercy to use every kind and type of individual personality. God is, is so open to all who repent. There's the key, as we'll see. Some of these individuals, those who were impetuous, energetic, inconsistent, impatient, proud, like Peter. Peaceful, stable, focused men, like Andrew. Aggressive, zealous, sectarian, ambitious, and could not be held back, like James, the brother of John. Aggressive, zealous, sectarian, ambitious, um, that can learn by being a good listener, observer, and yield to the love of God like John, the beloved. Pragmatic, prejudiced, perceptibly slow individuals like Philip, full of faith, meditative, prayerful, insightful into the things of God like Bartholomew, who is also named Nathaniel, as we saw in our last study. Corrupt, dishonest, and greedy people who care only for themselves, like Matthew. He was the worst of worst. The Jews sold out to the Roman Empire to extract taxes from the Jews, his own people. Hmm. All these various individuals God can and will use if they yield to the transforming work of the Holy Spirit of God. There's the key, ladies and gentlemen. That is the gospel. Thomas is our next apostle. And John, again, will be the key to unveiling the life of one more apostle because uh, the other three gospels say nothing about Thomas. So John is the one that we draw our material from. We cannot speak from the absence of Scripture. We cannot speak by opinion or subjective reasoning. We must speak by objective truth that is recorded in the Scriptures. That's why it's called exegesis. You extract what's in the text. You don't assume or insert things that are not in the text. That way you are accepting objective truth revealed by God. The name Thomas appears four times. Once each time in the four lists that are found, Matthew 10, 3, in this point as we use Matthew, Mark 3, 18, Luke 6, 15, and Acts 1, 13. And Matthew, Thomas is seen in the list preceding Matthew. In Mark and Luke, Thomas follows Matthew. In Acts, Thomas follows Philip. So the orders may be different as to uh, certain listings, but we've already seen categories of groupings that are never changing. Thomas is in the second circle of the four apostles, as we've seen. So Thomas has come to be known by the title Doubting Thomas. But hopefully, 
uh, we will be able to dispel and correct our view of Thomas to a more biblical one as we study him by a three-fold picture. First, Thomas the committed apostle. Second, Thomas the unintimidated apostle. And third, Thomas the convinced apostle. We began with Thomas the committed apostle. We go to John chapter 10. From verse 39 down to 42, the location is beyond the Jordan where John the Baptist was baptizing at first. In verse 39 of chapter 10, the reason Jesus was present beyond the Jordan was due to the increasing hostility of the Jews to seize him, but he had escaped. We see this often in the Gospels. It wasn't his time yet. In verse 40, the Lord Jesus was residing there for the time. It says, there he stayed. Now the people came to Jesus, telling him John performed no sign, but confirming all that John the Baptist has said about him, that it was true. And many believe, verse 41 and 42 tell us. Remember that John the Baptist is the forerunner for Jesus. He's a trailblazer for the Messiah. Now look at chapter 11 there of John. Verse 1 through 3, the news came to Jesus and Lazarus was sick. The man was Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. Verse 2 tells us that Mary, who had anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, her brother Lazarus was sick. So the identity is given from different perspectives. You cannot mistake in this family. Jesus spent much time with them. The one you love is sick. The message was that was sent to Jesus. And he tarried three more days. Look at verse 4. And then we'll see 7 and 8, the proclamation of Jesus' disciples. It says, the hearing of the news, uh, Jesus said, The sickness was not unto death, but for the glory of God, verse 4 says, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Then Jesus, in verse 7, announce, uh, announces to them, Let us go to Judea again. Now remember the background. There's hostility. They're after Jesus. In verse 8, the disciples all remind Jesus of the impending danger. Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and you're going there again? Not one of the eleven were courageous enough to go with Jesus instantly, but they focused on the danger. They were willing to reign with Jesus, but not to die with him at this time. Remember, they're always arguing about who is the greatest. We'll get to that. Look at verse 14 through 16 here in John 11. In 14, now the faith um, uh, proclamation of Thomas comes forth. In 14, Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And he declared, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. This announcement 
was a suicide mission from the human perspective, from the logical observation. The response of Thomas in verse 16 is interesting. Then Thomas, who is called twin, says to the other disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, you already have thoughts in your mind because you believe that he is doubting Thomas. <laughs> Notice Thomas is not focusing on the danger. Thomas acknowledges and accepts the danger as an inevitable thing. Thomas was ready to die with Christ. As you know, Thomas is his Hebrew name and it signifies twin, as I just stated. There was another one like him, either a sister or brother, we don't know. He was one of two. Whether identical or fraternal, we're not told. Thomas was the most courageous man among the twelve. You ever see him like that? Yet, we are told nothing else about this courageous man. Notice Thomas was deeply in love with Jesus. He is the one responsible for moving the other eleven to faith and to go also. He was a pessimist who dealt with reality and did not shirk from the inevitable fatal end. He is of such temperament that he sees the negative but is not discouraged, instead fully committed. Now the shrinks would tell you Say two positives to everyone negative. You should always put the positive first. Really? God said to Adam, don't need of that. Did God reinforce it with two positives? Who are you going to believe? Hmm. He's totally committed in the midst of the situation or circumstances, out of his faith and love for Jesus. He, being a pessimist, was more faithful than an optimist, knowing and accepting the bad outcome, while an optimist is committed, hoping for the best outcome, and when things turn, he may get discouraged or quit. He just accepts it. It's called reality. Many of our youth today do not live in a real world. They live in a politically academic ideal world that does not exist anywhere in the world. They're going to have to wake up one day. It's going to be a shock. He was willing to die with Jesus. For Thomas to live with Jesus is expectable. For Thomas to die with Jesus is also acceptable. For Thomas to live without Jesus is unthinkable. Wow. 
a young Chinese convert whose um, given name was Lo, became greatly excited when he read in Matthew 28, 20, as a new babe in Christ. He told the word, um, he, he took the word Lo to apply to him personally, aglow with the joy of his newly discovered partnership with God. He exclaimed, look, missionary, it says Lo, I am with you always. How interesting when we are so childlike and we trust God completely. Though he was wrong in the exposition, what it did to his faith regarding God is something unbelievable. Hmm. Sometimes um, we get so intellectually advanced that we forget to live by faith, the revelation of God's word. You're to grow, you're to develop, you're to mature on every level, but never remove yourself from childlike faith. That means believing every word in the Bible. Trusting God's revelation. Not your brain. Use your brain for in order to be an obstacle to the revelation of God's word. Are you a committed disciple of Jesus only when things are going right or even though the greatest disappointments in life come? Do you accept dying with Jesus? He was God, he became man. He sat in glory, he divested himself of his glory. He's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. Yet he came to wash feet. Wow. The times of trials are guaranteed. Acts 14, 22. We must enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations. Did you know that? You ever read that? Do you jump for joy? <laughs> it's true, though. There will be um, a wide variety, First Peter 1, 6 says, of various trials. Difficult ones, tragic ones, heartbreaking. Things we can do nothing about. They will be of the uh, severest test, fiery, First Peter 4.12 says. It will be for the revealing of the genuineness of our faith, which is more valuable than gold and that perishes being found to the praise, the honor, and the glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, First Peter 1.7 says. As gold is refined through the fire, and so us the believer to remove all the dross all the junk all the worthless things are you one to step forward in times when most others sidestep the challenge are you a faithful soldier to endure hardship as second timothy 2 3 through 4 says a soldier out in the field when my son was over in iraq he wasn't worried about paying his auto insurance wasn't worried about anything but one thing, to be alert and faithful and to kill the enemy. You understand you're a soldier of the cross? A lot of distractions. They keep you from being a faithful soldier. 
Are you a faithful athlete regardless of what you have to sacrifice? 2 Timothy 2.5. I competed in high school, junior college, university. Uh, went to nationals and gymnastics. You're an athlete. You know there's a lot of sacrifice, a lot of pain. But because you want that little crown. <laughs> do we do any less for Jesus? Should we? Hmm. Are you a hard-working farmer being nourished from the harvest you're involved in? 2 Timothy 2.6. Farmer's up early. Works the sun down. Partaker of his own fruits first. Then he gives to others. Can't give what you don't have. It's real simple. Are you committed to Jesus? If so, then you will be committed to the church for you cannot separate the one from the other. I, I run to a lot of Christians and, you know, sometimes people come up and, they, oh, this, I'm visiting or, you know, I'm a Christian, this and that. And that's so and I say, well, you go to church somewhere? Oh, no, no, I just kind of go here. I say, oh, you're a flake. The wind just blows you. Now, I have a lot of friends and I visit them, but I have one place where I live. And I sleep in that bed every night. And I go home every day. I'm your pastor. I'm here all the time. I never give up my Sunday except when I go to the Colombian mission, stuff like that. I'm always here. Because you're my responsibility. You don't belong to me, but I'm responsible for you. To feed you. To care for you. To oversee. This is what God has done. No glory to me. It's glory to God. That's the important thing. And so you cannot separate. If you say you're a Christian, then you, God will direct you to go to a church that teaches you the word of God. You get involved. You're a partaker. Don't just come in and go out. This is not in and out. This is church. And let God use you. Are you committed to Jesus? If so, then... You will be committed to the church, for you cannot separate them again, one from the other. Can't say that enough. Jesus is the head of the church, Ephesians 5.23. He's the one that calls the shots. He's the one that gives the orders. He's the one that directs us. Jesus um, has appointed every believer as part of the body, various gifts in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14, 1 Peter uh, 4, 9 and 10. We at least have one gift. You have to go to the Lord. Lord, what are my gifts? Where do I serve? What do I do? Don't come to me. I'm not Jesus. And God puts it all together. Since 1980, when this church started with three people in a Bible study. God has directed and guided and raised people up from the ministry. Everybody on staff is not a professional minister. We all work jobs. Construction, manufacturing, taping, painting, whatever. God raises people up. God raises his church. Otherwise, like today, a lot of the emerging church is a corporation. They're motivational speakers. They don't want to offend people, so they don't read the word of God. They don't use the word sin. They don't use the word repentance. They don't use the word that the Bible uses. Why? Because they'll offend people. Right? Listen, some people need to be offended drastically. Jesus expects you to be there, to be serving, and to be nourished. 
not forsaking the gathering of the saints as the manner of some as Hebrews 10.25 says. So already even at the time the scriptures were being written, people do that. Every generation. Um, this was Thomas, the committed apostle. Sold out. Secondly comes Thomas, the um, unintimidated apostle. We go to John 13 on this one. So just switch over a few pages. The chapter 13, the location is the upper room. So the context is important. The disciples were engaged in their usual conversation about who was the greatest in the kingdom. Now, we don't get it here in John, but we get this note in Luke 22, 24. Three times it's recorded. That means they spoke about it at least 3,000 times. That's still the conversation among pastors at conferences and even among people in the church. Who's the greatest? Jesus is. Everybody else is supposed to be a servant of Jesus. Jesus said nothing and gave all 12 an example of a servant in verse 4 through 15 as he washes their feet. Jesus is hearing. He knows what's going on. And he doesn't hear, have to hear anything. He knows what's in their heart. And they're talking about this, okay? Right before he's going to go to the cross. So he gets up, gets a bowl, water, towel. Begins to wash feet. He comes to Peter and Peter says, Not so, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. He says, Really? You'll have no part nor lot with me. Lord, give me a bath. One by one, he washed their feet. Now, do you think he washed Jesus' carrier's feet? Study the text. Certainly did. And you find check after check after check with Judas Iscariot. Jesus loved him so much, he continued to pursue him to see if he would repent. He chose not to repent. Wow. Verse 16 and 17, Jesus told him, Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed, happy, oh, how happy are you if you hear them, do them. The happiness is in doing. You find a happy child in your home, you find a child that's obeying. You find a child that's not obeying, you find a very unhappy home. It's real simple. Go to chapter 14, verse 1 through 4. The shocking news Jesus declares was that he was leaving to go to the Father. Now remember, these guys have forsaken all, committed everything, left their their fishing businesses, everything. And in verse 1, Jesus told them not to allow their hearts to be troubled. If they believe in God, they were to believe in Him, God the Father. The Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In verse 2, the first portion, Jesus told them that in His Father's house were many mansions or abiding places. If it were not so, He would have told them. In other words, He's not lying. The remainder of two, Jesus told them he was going to prepare a place for them. Mark that well. In three, Jesus told them if he went to prepare a place for them, he would come again and receive them. Underline that, receive them to himself. 
that where he would be there, they would be also. This is the first mention of the rapture of the church. You must make the distinction between Jesus coming back with his church and coming back to receive his church. First Thessalonians, he comes for his church. Second Thessalonians, he comes back with his church. He comes for her prior to the seven-year tribulation. He comes back with her at the end of the seven-year tribulation. Real simple. Jesus told them that where he went, they knew. And the way, they knew, verse 4. Now, the sincere, impetuous honesty of Thomas is declared. Verse 5. Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you're going. Thomas again, a pessimist. But unpretentious and speaks for all the twelve. We. Thomas was not a yes man. If he did not understand something, he said it. I don't know what you're talking about. Thomas also said at the end of verse 5 there, and how can we know the way? Thomas does not understand all this going away business. Trying to figure it out. He states the plain question, how can we know the way? Thomas is neither embarrassed nor intimidated by the other 12. Most people are followers if you've lived life long enough. Very few stand alone. It's the exception. As Christians, we should stand alone. If that's what it calls for. Always. For the word of God. Thomas is committed as we have seen. But he needs to be clear in his understanding. Look at verse 6. The secret to heaven is proclaimed by Jesus to Thomas. I'm glad Thomas was there. Jesus said to Thomas, I am the way. There is no other person that can get you to heaven or God apart from Jesus Christ. No one. Anybody who promises you heaven apart from the person of Jesus Christ is a liar and a deceiver. Anybody adds anybody else to the list, liar and a deceiver. No one died for you or I except for Jesus Christ. No one. There's no other name you can be you can call upon. Not Mary, not Buddha, not Allah. No one. There's no umpire or arbitrator between God and man, but the man Christ Jesus, first Timothy two five says. Notice Jesus said then I am the truth. He is the truth about the things of God, the things of man. Any topic in the Bible is absolute truth. He's the truth about sin and salvation. He's the truth about judgment. Man has become so arrogant, not educated, because People who are educated according to the science, natural law, and everything else can only conclude one thing. 
Somebody created this whole thing. It didn't explode and land here. It's indoctrination that twists you and runs you away from God and logic and reason. That's called indoctrination. You memorize things even though they don't make any sense because it's a worldview. Either you have a Christian worldview or you have a humanistic worldview. One will get you to heaven, the other one to hell. It's your choice. God doesn't force you. Wow. He said, I am the life. He's the giver of life, the source of life. Listen, the taker of life. He gives it, he takes it. Jesus said, no man comes to the Father except through me. He is the one. In this one statement, he has destroyed every religion, every ism, every philosophy, every teaching that promises you heaven and getting to God. Jesus is very, very narrow. Jesus is not politically correct. He, in this one statement, destroyed all these things. He silenced all the atheists, the agnostics, the philosophers, the professors. All of them. They think they're so chic and so smart. The naturalist, J. Henry Fabry, once conducted an experiment with pine processionary caterpillars. He set a group of them on the edge of a flower pot, and they followed one another around the sterile rim for seven days without deviating, even though a branch of pine, their favorite food, lay right beside the pot. Conformity, for conformity's sake, keeps people from the most obvious and holds them back. When you buy the Sinai and the Kool-Aid of the political arena and the indoctrination of the universities that mock God and his word and stand against it, you're like this caterpillar. When what will nourish you is right beside you, the word of God. Hmm. Are you one who um, just goes with the program, pretending to know and remain in the dark? Just repeating what others say or repeating because you are persuaded that it is true. Not having searched it out yourself, you just, you embrace it. We just had this whole thing with Kavanaugh. I believe she's telling the truth. Now, you may get upset. I don't really care. Where's the evidence? We're a republic, a constitution. You're innocent until proven guilty. Evidence. This is a character assassination. Socialist, Marxist philosophy. Those of you who come from those countries know that. Very, very clear. 
you have a question about some doctrine or subject, there's probably others that have it. And you're asking, they will gain knowledge, they will gain understanding. Whatever question you have, you should ask and never be intimidated or fearful. If, if a pastor won't answer your question, get up and go to another church. You have questions about the text, the teaching, or something, he should be able to respond to you or to give a reason for every man for, uh, for the, our faith, the meekness and fear. Right? I'm not advocating questions that merely question the authority of the church or leaders, though these are the type of, of people that sometimes do run the church, corrupt people. Listen, you've got good dentists, bad dentists. You've got nice black people, bad black people. You've got nice Mexicans, bad Mexicans. You know, it's not the color. It's not the race. It's not the sex. It's the individual. The heart of man is deceitful, desperately wicked, Jeremiah 79. They have to finish sin. Man is good for nothing except sin. 45 years since I've been born again. You want to go sin? I'm ready. My heart is deceitfully wicked. Unless I walk in the Spirit and trust God, God help you and me, everybody around me. My only hope is Jesus, ladies and gentlemen. No one else. There are people who cause divisions by various issues, always. First Corinthians 1, 11 through 13. Some say, I'm a Paul, I'm a Paulus, I'm a this, I'm a that. And they just like to divide. You have, you have to be thinking, put on the Bible, put on the mind. When people come, they try to gossip and stuff like that. You know what? I'm going to see Jim today. I'm going to tell him that you want to talk to him about that. Because at first, have you talked to this person about it? No, well, no. Bible says Matthew 18. You have to go to them first. Right there, you have silenced the gossip. Right there, you've silenced the division in the church. You say, we do not tolerate that here. If you have a problem, go to the individual first. If not, then by twos, then by threes, then by the elders. You keep the house clean. Your parent, father or mother, if you don't do that to your children, your house will be a crazy place. They're self-serving, desiring to be seen of men. Not caring for the flock, drawing disciples to themselves, as Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, verse 29 through 30. They're carnal, operating in the works of the flesh, as Galatians 5, 19 through 21. If you think everybody comes here to Pasadena is godly, you're smoking crack. If you think everybody comes here is because they just love the Lord, you're wrong again. People go to church for different reasons. Uh, to be no fool, you're to examine everything by the word of God. We're not looking for failure. We're not looking now like a detective trying to see who is. We just let it flow. Time takes care of it. We drop the plumb line, the word of God. It'll show who's crooked sooner or later. It's real simple. Make sure your questions lead to Jesus, not a mere doctrinal argument. There is no other way to get to heaven but God through the person of Jesus Christ who is God. John 3, 16, 14, 6, on the way, the truth, the life. No one else. 
Are you clear on that? Or are you open-minded? Hmm. There's no other name given under heaven and earth whereby men must be saved. Acts 4.12. No other name. Only Jesus. Yahweh's salvation is what it means. Joshua in the Hebrew. Jesus in the Greek. There is no other mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, 2 Timothy 2.5. A mediator is the one between two. A husband and wife can't get along. They go to a mediator, an arbitrator. He tries to reconcile them. He's neither for one or the other. He's, he's putting it together. This was Thomas, the unintimidated apostle. Wow. Third, Thomas, the, um, the convinced apostle. We go to John chapter 20, verse 19 through 23. The Lord Jesus appears to the eleven. This is after the resurrection. And at 19, the Lord appears Sunday evening to the eleven. They were gathered together for fear of the Jews, our text tells us. And the doors being shut, Jesus appeared and stood in their midst. The words spoken were most appropriate. Listen, peace be with you. What's the implication? They were very troubled. <laughs> when the Bible says stop being afraid, it means they were afraid. When he says peace be unto you, it means they have no peace. Jesus had told them they would be scattered at his arrest, the purpose um, so that they might have peace in John 16, 32. He already told them before, you're all going to leave me. You're all going to abandon me. Peter said, I'll die. We all never abandon Okay. In John 16, 33, Jesus also told them that in the world they would have tribulation, but they were to be a good cheer for he had overcome the world. Look at your own life. Well, I don't know where you came from. I don't know what happened in your life. I don't know when you got born again. But look and see the contrast between your old life and your new life. And the way you used to live and the turmoil you might have had. And the peace that now you have with Jesus Christ, knowing your sins are forgiven. You can depend upon him. And you know absolute truth what life is about. You know what a heavy load that is? Wow. Jesus had already distinguished the difference between his peace and the world's peace. He said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let it be afraid in John fourteen twenty seven, The peace of the world is false. It's temporary. The peace of Jesus is constant if our mind and heart is stayed on him. The world promises you a lot of things and you're happy when you get the new car, but then you're driving it off a lot and somebody smacks into you. You're not so happy. Everything in this world is temporal, ladies and gentlemen. Hang on to it very, very loosely. When God removes something from you, because he's going to give you something better. <laughs> so don't be like that baby with the rattle. His knuckles are white because, you know, mommy wants to take it out. You're not going to take it from me. Is it God's will or my will? Wow. In verse 20, the Lord showed his hands, his feet inside, and the disciples were glad. 
the very presence of Jesus once again gained their composure. This is what Jesus does. I don't know about you, but the enemy starts attacking me, whatever it is, I just start talking to the Lord. And I ultimately end up, nothing, what can, what can cleanse me from, from my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh man, what that does. Because the enemy is a liar. He condemns. He wants to distract you. He wants to take your peace. The physical evidence of his bodily presence satisfied them. Look at 21. The Lord commissioned them now to take the gospel to the world. Jesus once again declared peace to you. Jesus compared his being sent by the Father into the world to his sending of them. As the Father sent me, I also send you. The commission. In 22 and 23, the Lord enabled them for the commission. Mark that well. Whatever God calls you to, he enables you. Jesus never calls somebody to do something without enabling them. It's a contradiction. It's an accusation that is false against Christ. Verse 22, Jesus gave them power by breathing on them and saying... Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, some have a difficult time reconciling these words with the experience at Pentecost. No, no, no contradiction. The most plain sense is usually the correct interpretation. The 11 receive the Holy Spirit to make it say anything else is nonsense. The plain sense is the usual sense, the correct sense, and to make it say anything else is nonsense. John Wesley said that. Jesus spoke straightforward. He spoke clearly. He meant what he said. Notice in 23, Jesus gave them the authority, the message of the gospel. Not only the power, but the authority. Jesus said, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. Wow. It's pretty crazy, huh? Now, this does not teach that the apostles had power and authority to forgive sins in and of themselves. This verse is used by the Catholic Church as a basis for their priests being able to forgive your sins in confession, which is completely off the wall. The disciples were not priests. Now, we're all priests and kings, a kingdom, a nation of priests and kings, but not in the form of the Catholic Church, okay? It's a corruption of it. This rather teaches that they were vested with the authority to proclaim that on the basis of the finished atoning work of Jesus Christ, sins could be forgiven to those who call on the Lord if they trusted in Jesus and repented of their sins. He's dealing with the commission of the gospel. So if someone hears the gospel and they say, you know, I want to repent, I want to accept Jesus. And you say the sinner's prayer, you accept Christ. And I have the ability, the privilege of saying to you, your sins have been cast in the deepest ocean, cast as far as east from the west, and they never will be mentioned again. Wow. Because you trusted in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. that He died for your sin. He tasted death for you. He rose from the dead. 
Secondly, Jesus said, if you retain the sins of any, these are retained. Now, this, again, does not teach that they could refuse to forgive the person's sins if they chose to. Okay, who wants to forgive? No, not, not you. I'll take you. No, no, that's not what it's saying. This teaches that they could tell any person that if they refused the forgiveness of sins through repentance on trusting the atoning work of Jesus Christ in the resurrection, then I could say, by rejecting that, you're still in your sin if you die. The minute you give your last breath, you will be instantly imprisoned in hell. I have that authority, and so do you. It's based on God's objective truth of what he did on the cross. When the person accepts it or rejects it through repentance. Is that clear? Now, the response of the Apostle Thomas, as he is told of the Lord's appearance here now, in John 20, let's go there. In verse 24 and 25 is next. Thomas had not been um, present with the other 11 when Jesus appeared, as you know. Verse 24. They told Thomas, we have seen the Lord in 25. The response of Thomas was usual and consistent. Unless I see his hands, the print of the nails, and put my finger into the uh, prints of the, uh, of the nails and put on the, my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, Thomas was persistent. He's a pessimist by his reality that Jesus was gone. He had not been present. Life was not worth living and most likely the reason why he was not present in the first appearance. He probably just went somewhere to deal with the reality of it and was a bit down as anybody would who has experienced some tragic event of death. Notice the usual label given to Thomas is that of doubting Thomas, which is not fair. Nor is it accurate to the scriptures. I myself in the past have labeled him as such until we did the study on the character studies and we crossed his path. Jesus rebuked the eleven for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen, namely the women in Mark sixteen fourteen, They all doubted. Now why is this title hung on Thomas only? Luke confirms this by saying, And their words seemed to them, the disciples, like idle tales, nonsense, and they did not believe them, meaning the women in Luke 24, 11. So all 11 doubted, because Judas is not there at that point. The women certainly did not believe, or they would not have taken spices, but rather they would have take, gone to see the resurrection. The very fact the women took spices, they didn't believe the resurrection. They were going to anoint body. They're doubters. The two on the road to Emmaus were unbelieving, for Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe, and all that the prophets have spoken, ought not 
the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Luke 24, 25 through 27. They were doubters of two men in the road to Emmaus. As the two on the road to Emmaus were willing to communicate that after the fact, telling the eleven, Jesus appears in the midst of them, and it says, they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit, at which time Jesus presented his friends, but they did not believe, and he asked for food to prove the reality of his presence in Luke 24, 36-43. They doubted. Look now at John 20, verse 26 and 27. The reason, reasonable evidence the Lord gave to Thomas is given to us here. In verse 26, and after eight days, the disciples were again in, uh, uh, inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. This was a difficult time for the apostles, these uh, uh, 40 days until Jesus left and ascended to heaven. Jesus then told Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believe. Jesus did not rebuke Thomas any more than the other disciples. Jesus gave him the same proof that he gave to the other disciples or apostles. Jesus does not refuse to reveal and prove certain things to substantiate our faith all the time, even though we live by faith, not by sight. You can come to Jesus with your question, your doubts. He doesn't I guess, oh, you again? Hmm. Notice verse 28 and 29, the consistent response of Thomas is the climax of John's gospel. In 28, Thomas said to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Thomas knew this as far back as when he made his pessimistic commitment. Let us also go that we may die with him in John eleven sixteen. Wow. Thomas, the pessimist, in his reality that Jesus was gone, no longer thought life was worth living. Thomas gives to us the absolute confession of faith. Jesus is Lord, the one who rules our lives and God, who knows all things, even the motives of our hearts, our thoughts before they get there. Psalm 139. Notice in 29 here, Thomas was told by Jesus the evidence of greater faith. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This speaks of all who would come to Christ in the future age of grace. Never having seen Jesus, but believing the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like you and I. Wow. 
there is an old Arab proverb that reads as follows. He that knows not and knows not that he knows not, he's a fool. Shun him. He that knows not and knows that he knows not, he is simple. Teach him. He that knows and knows not that he knows, he is asleep. Awake him. He that knows and knows that he knows, he is a wise man. Follow him. We live in a very um, false world today, ladies and gentlemen. Misinformation. Erroneous truth. We've gone from an objective society of morals and ethics to an amoral society when we crossed the year 2000. At that time, the political correct language came in. A new language, a new philosophy was produced by the administration of Obama. No one was ever called a liar again. You just misspoke. And that was only one of thousands of words that were entered into the new dictionary to remove every reality of truth in every way. That's fine, that's the world, but that doesn't include us. You need to understand truth. When you know truth, you'll be able to depict lies and fallacies, real simple. Do you have certain doubts? Take them to God in prayer, thanksgiving. He will answer them, Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Be anxious for nothing, everything by prayer and thanksgiving. The will of God. The Lord does not mind any sincere doubt. He's there to teach us. We want to know the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, as Paul says in Philippians 3.12. Once God dispels our doubts, answers our questions, and provides what is necessary, then we have to make the proper response to him, even as Thomas, my Lord and my God. He's on the throne. I am the servant. Acknowledge him as your Lord in every sense. In every area. For Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Matthew seven twenty one. There are many people in church this morning who will not be in heaven. Some of them may be our husbands, our wives, our children, our grandchildren. Because salvation is individual, not family packaged. God has no grandchildren, just sons and daughters. Acknowledge him as your God, who's a faithful creator. 1 Peter 4.19 says, in your suffering, you commit yourself to him. That's the context of 1 Peter 4.19. Not when everything's going well. If you're a pessimist, make sure you are one like Thomas, loyal to Jesus unto death, loving Jesus so much that he could not stand the thought of living Without him looking to Jesus to reveal the truth personally to him. This was Thomas, the convinced apostle. Hmm. Now, do you think Thomas deserves the title of Doubting Thomas? 
I don't think so. This threefold view has corrected our perspective to a biblical one. Thomas the committed apostle, Thomas the unintimidated apostle, and Thomas the convinced apostle. Father, we worship you. We thank you for your grace and love. I pray for every person here, Lord. I pray you speak to our hearts. Lord, as you direct and guide us and help us to live in the reality of your word and your gospel, Lord, that we may be an asset to reach others. We would not be overcome by the lies and deception of the world, Lord. We are strangers and pilgrims. Our true home is you, Lord, in, in heaven. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved. Maybe you're over the Internet. If you believe Jesus <clears throat> became man as God, <clears throat> died for your sins, and rose from the dead, then you can be saved. You can call upon him. A simple prayer of repentance. If you want to be born again, this is your prayer to him. Not to us, but to him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.